Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Next Track. You can find us at thenexttrack.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. I'm guessing that if you asked most Americans, they'd have no idea what the Eurovision Song Contest is. It's pretty much largely ignored in the United States. But think of it like the American Super Bowl. Even if you don't care about the game itself, you know about the Super Bowl because it's arguably the biggest U.S. television event of the year. Well, Eurovision is like that, except it's not an athletic contest. It's a multi-country song contest. Our guest today is Dean Asker. He's an acquaintance of Kirk's, as he will explain. Dean is a Eurovision fan and, for our purposes, a Eurovision expert. Dean, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I got to know Dean some years ago. He works as a press officer at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is my local theater and that I've mentioned on the show many times. And I think it was about three years ago on Twitter, he mentioned something about he was at the Eurovision Song Contest. Like, this was a week before the final. (laughs) And I replied, are you a judge or something? He says, no, I'm a fan. I go there every year. This is going to be your 23rd year. Is that correct? That's right. I went to my first contest in... 1995. Uh, I missed out 1999. But apart from that, I've been to every contest uh, since then. And so for for all our American listeners who don't know about the Eurovision Song Contest, we're going to try and explain the history and the concept of it. Hold on to your seats, because this is something that you would never get in this form in the United States. (laughs) So you have traveled essentially all around Europe to go to these events, and you don't just go for the final. There's a whole process of about 10 days, isn't there, with semifinals and rehearsals? Absolutely. I mean, already, it takes about two weeks, the the rehearsals. So this year, the rehearsals started uh, on Sunday, the 29th of April, um, and they take two weeks. It's a much bigger event than it used to be. Um, it's, it's got two semifinals now because there are so many countries that want to take part, so they have to whittle the numbers down to a more manageable 26 countries for the final on Saturday, the 12th of May. So it starts with 43 countries and it gets down to 26. We're recording this on April 30th because you're leaving on Wednesday. And I guess you can't leave until Wednesday because Tuesday is press night of (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, which is what they call opening night in the U.S. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, we do have our press night for Romeo and Juliet on that day. Um, I probably could have could have gone. I mean, I've got friends who are already out there or who've been there about three or four days already. So I have been for the full duration of two weeks, but it's quite a slog uh, and it's quite expensive if you decide to spend uh, that long. In some countries, I was in Norway one year and spending two weeks in Norway uh, was incredibly expensive. Where is it this year, by the way? It's in uh, Lisbon, in Portugal. It's the first time that Portugal has ever won. They were the country that had participated the most without a win and uh, when they won last year uh, fans and obviously people from portugal were very very pleased because you get to go to a country that you may never have been to yeah certainly for me i mean it has shown me parts of europe that i would probably have never been to um i mean i've I've actually never been to lisbon or portugal so i'm very much looking forward to that um but um i've been to you know baku in azerbaijan and kiev twice in ukraine up into moscow Tallinn and Estonia, Riga in Latvia, I could go on. Um, So it's a great way of seeing um, parts of of Europe. And of course, it's not just Europe that takes part. Israel takes part. Australia takes part as well. So I was going to ask about that. What is this with Australia? And if they won, 
So the the contest is held in the country that won the previous year. Yeah. So it's in Portugal this year because a Portuguese singer won last year. If Australia were to win, would they hold it in Australia? No, uh, no, that, they wouldn't because it would be too difficult because it would have to start at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, but moreover, it would be incredibly expensive to take all the participants to Sydney. I guess it would be Sydney. So if Australia were to win, and they came very close a couple of years ago, uh, it would be opened up to all the other participants to make a bid. My guess is it would be somewhere like probably Germany, to be honest, probably Berlin, somewhere like that. Because um, I think when Australia first took part uh, three years ago, that's their fourth participation this year, uh, that question w was um, kind of dealt with quite quickly. Yeah. Didn't they come in second once? Yeah. Uh, two years ago, uh, a singer called Dami Eam came second. She'd won the uh, the jury vote by uh, by quite a long way, and I was really hoping she was going to win. And then um, Ukraine won the televote. Well, it actually came second in the televote, but Ukraine won overall. So I was uh, it can be very disappointing sometimes, Eurovision, if you particularly like a certain song. Um, but yes, they came second two years ago. We'll explain the voting later because that is a really <laughs> uh, obscure system. Um, can, can you just give us a brief overview of the history of the Eurovision contest? Yeah, it kind of originated out of um, a contest that still goes on in Italy called the San Remo Festival. And that's uh, a very highly regarded contest in Italy where Italian singers sing new songs. Um, and in 1956, the first Eurovision took place in Lugano in Switzerland with a very small number of countries. The UK wasn't part of it. That I year. think it was seven. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and it's grown and grown and grown and grown. And of course, because of the history of Europe, um, it's got bigger. Yugoslavia used to be one country. Obviously, now it's like about seven or eight countries. Um, and the way in which the USSR broke up created, again, more countries to take part. And it was bursting at the seams. And Eurovision had to deal with that. And eventually, in 2004, uh, we had one semi-final, And that got didn't work either. I think we got to one point where there's either 27 or 29 countries in the semi-final looking for 10 spots in the final. So eventually they created two semi-finals, and from those semi-finals, 10 countries go forward to the final alongside the host country, which this year is Portugal, and five other, five other countries that are automatically qualified for the final every year, which includes the United Kingdom. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note that the UK won several times. I'm just looking at the list in Wikipedia. Was it four or five times? Five. But... In the past 10 or 20 years, the UK has not done well, have they? <laughs> no, we, uh, in 2003, we got uh, zero points or in the kind of uh, parlance of Eurovision. It's called null point, uh, which was unheard of. The UK always used to do very, very well in the contest. Um, it used to be partly because, I don't know, big stars entered, really uh, established songwriters took part. Also, we did have the advantage of being one of the few countries that could sing in English. It used to be until 1999 that you had to sing in your own native language. There was a period in the 70s where they relaxed that, but it went back to being in your native tongue. And for whatever reason, I think you are at an advantage being able to sing in English. Um, so, uh, yes, um, in the late 90s, we had a, a crop of really good songs and really good results. And then everybody else, and particularly Eastern Europe, came in and they got the hang of the contest very quickly and knew 
what kind of songs to put in. We got hung up on a, a so-called Eurovision song. One of the most famous Eurovision winners is a song called Boom Bang A Bang by Lulu, a Scottish singer. And that is a typical UK kind of song, a very kind of bouncy, bouncy song. Um, but Eurovision, although it still has some of those, has progressed. And I would argue that some of the songs in the contest are great songs and are contemporary songs. Yeah, I was actually surprised. That I, I don't watch it every single year, but most years I do. And I was surprised last year that the, the Portuguese song, which is called Amar Pelos Dios by Salvador Sabral, was a sort of Frank Sinatra, Nelson Riddle type song and not what you usually find as a winner of Eurovision. Yeah, I mean, I think people think the stereotype is something like uh, the Bucks Fizz song, Making Your Mind Up, or Abba's Waterloo, very up-tempo, very catchy, very obvious. Um, but the great thing about Eurovision for me and for, for people, actually everybody, but I think fans particularly, is the variety of songs. The song that you mentioned that won last year was something almost like a, of a Hollywood 40s, 50s movie, and it was beautiful, and it was staged very simply. Sometimes songs that win are, have extravagant staging, but um, it just depends on what countries put in and what's against them. And last year, that song stood out, and um, it was sung very simply, and it, you know, and it won the televote and the jury vote. So um, it's a great song. You know, we've had songs a couple of years before that that were kind of modern pop songs. Um, so anything can win. Yes, and, and before we started recording, I was showing Doug the YouTube video of Lordy, the Finnish group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll link to yeah. that in the show notes. <laughs> it's true. Any any kind of music could win Eurovision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that song was a kind of rock metal, well, probably rock song, really. It had a bit of... Well, it had, he, yeah, it wasn't quite heavy yeah, metal. You, yeah, you, you'd probably know better than me, but it was a rock song. But it had a bit of a gimmick because the guys that sang it, Lordy, a Finnish rock group, were dressed as monsters, but they did do that all the time. They didn't just do it for Eurovision, but it kind of helps sometimes if you have a gimmick, I guess, or something that makes you noticeable. That can be just standing there simply when all the other songs are going crazy and have got fireworks. And if you're just standing there on a stage in a spotlight, that can sometimes stand out. A real torch song can be a can be the the the, the standout, the one yeah. that's different. Yeah. But with Lordy, how much of it was a protest vote that people were saying? These guys that look like Kiss decomposing are just funny, and we're going to vote for them. <laughs> no, I don't think. I think. I think people liked it. I do. I think. There's, you can't, I don't think protest votes exist at Eurovision. I really don't. I think most. I mean, fans like me. I've listened to the songs a million times, and I, you know, it's too difficult for me to judge them now because I've become so subjective. But if you just watch the contest on the night, you probably will pick the winner. You'll get very close to it because songs just stand out. It's just obvious. If I another kind of um, thing about being a Eurovision fan is that I watch what we call the national finals. So most countries have their own kind of little final to choose. Well, I say little, some are quite big. Um, they have a final to choose their song. And sometimes I watch those blind and it's much easier for me to get to, to work out which song will win. Um, with the internet now, you can listen to songs as soon as they're available. Um, and as a fan, you're not going to wait until the night. You're just not. You, you, you want to immerse yourself in all of the songs. So, so you've heard the songs a dozen times before you get to the final. At least. <laughs> Probably a hundred times. Really? Whereas for most other people, it's the first they've ever heard of any of these songs yeah. or musicians or anything. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes there are songs that are unexpected. And I remember this, this song called Nocturne in 1995 by this Norwegian group. And that was really something because it was with these old Norwegian folk instruments and all and with a, a, a really 
strong presence of a violin. Yeah, it's a be- that was my first contest, actually. It was, it's one of my favourite winners, favourite songs. Um, it uh, was the Norwegian entry. Uh, the group was called Secret Garden. They actually composed the song You Raise Me Up by uh, that you'll know that Josh Groban has done, um, which is an international hit. Westlife had a hit with it. Um, but that song was primarily an instrumental. It had some Norwegian at the beginning sung and some Norwegian at the end. They've actually changed the rules now, so there has to be a certain number of words or a certain uh, amount of the song has to be words. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Um, and again, unusual. It, you, you know, Eurovision can be won by anything. It's so That's why I think some stars don't want to take part. People go, oh, if Adele took part, she would win. She might. But then something- I was going to ask that. Yeah. What, why hasn't Adele or Elton John or, or the Rolling Stones joined something like this? I don't know. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask them. I think they may be interested to write a song, but I don't think they want to be on the stage because in the end, if you don't win, with someone like that, if you don't win, then it's just a, it's a failure. Why would you do it? What have you got to gain, I think? Um, most of the people that take part, certainly in the UK, are not established stars, or if they are, they were, um, they're kind of, um, their fame was a few decades ago and they come back. Yeah. Um, I think it's a young person's game. Most of the winners now are young people uh, that are coming up, um, you know, through the ranks kind of thing. And I think that's what it probably should be. Having said that, some of the, some countries, certainly Russia, they send their biggest stars and it, they don't worry if they don't win. They just want to do well. I mean, they want to win. Some countries really want to win, believe me. Um, but they want the exposure for some of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some countries, Sweden, Sweden takes it the most. I mean, they have a great time, but they take it very seriously. And in Sweden, OK, it's a smaller country, but their national final goes on for six weeks. There are heats and it's the most watched program in the country and certainly within that domestic market. Um, all those songs will be hits. So there is a reason to take part. One, you'll have a hit, you'll make some money, and you will you can become a star in that country and in that territory. Um, so you have to want to do well. And I think it's really down... I mean, the host broadcaster of each country, um, for us, it's the BBC. They determine how um, their song is chosen. And some countries spend more time and more effort on it than others do. I'm looking at the list of winners in Wikipedia, and... Sweden won in 2012 and 2015, Denmark won in 2013, Norway in 2009, Denmark in 2000, and there's Estonia, Latvia, Finland. The Scandinavian countries do quite well. Yeah, those Nordic countries do do very well. I mean, Sweden particularly loves the contest. Uh, And of course, the most famous winner ever, Abba's Waterloo, comes from Sweden. I think, you know, maybe their love affair with it began then. I mean, I know some Swedish people and they say, you know, uh, in the winter in Sweden, there's nothing else to do. So, you you know, they get behind watching this program and the whole country, you know, is um, they're just obsessed with their, their entry. You know, they have 28 songs that are whittled down and then there's a massive final and a big, massive arena. And it seats about 40,000 people. It's so popular over there. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, also what's interesting, I think sometimes is smaller, is there's a level playing field that very, very small countries can win. And I know when Estonia won in 2001, it was incredibly important to them because it was a way of saying, we're Estonia, we are not part of the USSR, or we're not Russia. So some countries do use it a way of kind of um, making a point about who they are. And not just small countries like, 
Estonia, but Sweden similarly, they want to kind of portray an image of theirs of themselves as being tolerant and diverse. I'm sure, I mean, I think they are, but that's what they are keen to um, show when they produce the program. I, I lived in France for a very long time after the period that France won because they haven't won in a long time. And and I guess they're one of the two big countries that ends up at the bottom of the list at the end of the night, <laughs> along with the UK a lot these days, aren't they? Um, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, there are certain countries that are pre-qualified that don't have to go through the semifinals, and they are Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and the UK. So they're at a disadvantage already because their songs haven't been heard. Um, but the songs that qualify from the semifinals are going to be hopefully quite good because they've already been whittled down. Um, so, yes, I mean, actually, to be fair to France, um, they are, over the last couple of years, they have tried very hard. Um, and a couple of years ago, I think they came sixth or seventh. Um, and last year, I think they came tenth, something like that. And they've got a fantastic song this year. It's my favourite song. Um, so they're really trying a lot harder. Spain find it hard to do well. A lot of people favour their song this year. I, I'm, I'm not so sure about it myself. Um, Germany won the contest back in 2010. But at the time, there was a kind of um, Svengali kind of character that was looking after their national final. He really cared about it. And I think they've, they've kind of lot, he doesn't do it anymore. So sometimes it needs someone behind it to make it work, really, to kind of go, no, we need a different, we need a modern song. Don't give me any of this old fashioned rubbish. Kind of, let's have something modern and fresh. Um, but I mean, the UK, we have struggled. We've certainly struggled over the past, gosh, 15 years, probably. Yeah, and I noticed that, interestingly, and this seems to be the only time this happened, 1992, 1993, and 94, Ireland won three times in a row. That the only time anyone's won more than twice in a row. That's correct, yeah. There have been, there were a couple of instances where people won twice uh, consecutive. For example, Israel won in 1978 and 1979. But yeah, Ireland, I mean, there was a kind of standing joke in Ireland that was going to bankrupt the country. So they won in 92, <laughs> 93, 94, and in 1996. So, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it was a way of... B bankrupt because it costs a lot to put this event on. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, the some of the money comes from the people that take part. There's no doubt about that. And the UK contributes the second most money to... It's hosted by a company called the European Broadcasting Union. The UK puts the second most amount of money into that after Germany. But a lot of the money falls to the, the host country. There's no doubt about that. So if you're winning it all the time, you know, then it speaks for itself that programming across you know your your host broadcaster is going to potentially change a little bit the eurovision contest is well known for being extremely inclusive yeah um what was it 1998 dana international from israel who was a transgender singer won conchita worst in 2014 who apparently doesn't quite identify as transgender and in the u.s this is broadcast what is it logo tv which calls itself an lgbt channel yeah and I've even seen mentions when I was researching this. I had never heard this before, but some people call this the Gay World Cup. <laughs> Is it the campy, the kitschy aspect of it? The fact that it's a big party? Um, I'm not sure what it is, really. I mean, I'm a gay man myself. And I mean, if you go to the contest, most of the fans there are gay. There's no doubt about it. I'd say 90% I mean, like of the fans are probably gay. I'm not sure what that is, why that is. There must be something about the sensibility of it. Um it's fun. It's dramatic. You've got, you know, you've got ballads that are usually you know, well, traditional ballads are very, very dramatic and very heartbreaking. And then you've got fantastic pop songs as well. So I'm not sure how or why that maybe speaks to a gay audience. Maybe it, it just seems to. Um, but 
having said that, if it was only appealing to that particular audience, it wouldn't it wouldn't have survived. Right. It's not. It's it's broad. My my ex-wife's parents in France who were farmers, they would watch it every year. Um, People all over the place of all classes watch it. And it's really one of the rare events that can can bring people together so much. And obviously, most of the people that watch aren't in any way as interested as you are, but they're open to the variety of music, the different countries. And in some way, I guess it's a window on the world around them that they don't know too well. Yeah, I mean, certainly for me, when I first started watching it, I was like six and it was in 1976. And, you know, the UK always looks towards America. You know, everything on television was either British or American programming. But for one night of the year... It was like all these different languages. You know, I, I didn't know what these 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 words were, but somehow it didn't matter that I didn't understand literally what the songs were saying. Somehow the melody spoke to me. And also I was interested in, oh, what's France? What's Finland? What's Yugoslavia? Yeah. So it, it made me interested in, in Europe. I mean, you know, the UK has an interesting relationship with the rest of Europe. <laughs> yes, uh, as so we the know. very least. Um but for me, it was a window into into that into that history, that geography, that music, the languages. You know, I, I was then I did German and French at A level, so it it kind of it spoke to me on, on a number of levels. So now we need to talk about how this is structured. <laughs> so you get the twenty six songs, and what is it? Maybe four or five songs, and then the 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 um, the what do you call the presenters come in? They talk a little. We've heard this and we've heard that. And then when you get to the end of the 26 songs, which is about two hours-ish, then we have another hour and a half of voting. <laughs> now, I've always found the voting to be really interesting, almost sometimes more interesting than the music. And this has changed a lot because I remember in the early years, each country would have, what is it, 10 votes and they would they would announce each one of them. And now they don't announce, the, they only announce the last three because it takes so long. Yeah. Well, explain how the voting works, because on the one hand, there are, there are juries. On the other hand, the public votes in to hyper expensive phone calls to make their own votes. Yeah. So it is complicated and it's changed a lot. But the way it works now is each country, all 43, even if they didn't get through to the final, all 43 countries vote. Each country has a national jury. Of, musical, of music experts, and each country has five music experts on its jury. They vote and they establish their top 10. Uh, the hosts go around each of those 43 national juries and the votes are read, read out. Actually, you don't read out the first nine votes um, because there's not enough time. So the voting structure is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, and then the highest mark you can get from any jury is 12. So they go through all also known as du- twelve points or douze points, douze points, points. Because the European Broadcasting Union has two official languages, English and French. That's correct. Yes, and absolutely. I mean, it used to be that you had to kind of host it in both languages. It's 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 primarily hosted in English now. So that then you've been around all forty three juries. You've got a mark on the screen, and you can see who's winning. But that's only half of it. Then the public. They, they established the other 50% of the vote. But we're not going to go around every single country again and say, oh, tell me what your televote was. So what they do is they add up all the points that, um, you know, each country's got. Not like the number of votes across, you know, not if they've got like 5 million televotes. It doesn't work like that. They're equated. The televote is equated to the same weighting as the jury. So, again, 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve. But they just add them all up. And they start with the lowest and they keep going, keep going, keep going. And then they re- they reveal the winner. It's more exciting that way. It used to be that you could know who'd won the contest about seven or eight jurors before the end and people were turning off. So um, that's how they do it now. It's quite complicated to explain. When Even when you watch it, you kind of think, oh, hang on, what, what's going on here? And most people have probably had a bit of a drink by that point. <laughs> but they probably, if you're an ordinary viewer, you probably kind of don't care yeah. that, how the voting works. But that is how it works. And it's incredibly fair and um, it's incredibly, I mean, there's like people over, you know, overseeing it all and making sure there's no corruption. Because obviously, if you're, ju- you're a juror, you actually, are, you are 10% of that country's final vote. Yeah. And during this process, they pause and they cut to the little tables and couches where the, the singers and the groups are waiting and they get close-ups and they ask, how are you doing? Yeah. Are, yeah, are you yeah. excited and all that? Yeah. So it kind of makes the voting part less boring, but... I still think that I think last year they just did this change, or was it the year before, where they just throw all the points at once, and that made it a lot more interesting. As you say, you don't know yeah. when there's still ten to go, ten countries to go, who's going to win, and and it does come out. And, and if I'm not mistaken, last year it was neck and neck until the last couple of countries were announced, wasn't it? Yeah, Portugal had won the jury vote, and they were ahead by a certain number of points. I can't remember how many, but you you know, and then when they read out the televotes it got to the last two and you know in the end um bulgaria was second but portugal could have come second and bulgaria could have come first with a televote but still portugal could have won for example when ukraine won two years ago uh jamala who sang for them she didn't win either she she came second in both the jury and the televote but won because russia won the uh, televote, but Australia won the jury vote. So, you know, uh-huh. it's it's great if you love pouring over statistics and things <laughs> like that, believe me. But the voting tends to be tribal. So the televote, you're not allowed to vote for your own country. No. So the French will vote for the Belgians, and the Belgians <laughs> will vote for the French, and the Dutch will vote for the Germans, and the Russians will vote for the Ukrainians, etc. Possibly. I mean, some people talk about political voting. I mean, I think you're right. There is neighborly voting or cultural voting for example if you live in one of the ex-yugoslav states you're probably going to know the singer that's represented if you live in slovenia you might know the, the singer who's who you know who sings for slovenia for croatia because you're just going to know that it's the same with scandinavia there is a habit that these countries will vote for each other but usually it's kind of fair because you can kind of think well okay i can understand that they know that singer or that's something that they would hear a lot um, you know, it's difficult for some countries. They don't have any natural neighbours. The UK doesn't have... I mean, Ireland, actually, about the only country we can rely on. And strangely, San Marino and Albania seem to vote for the UK. They're about the only people that do. <laughs> don't know why. But, um, yeah, whereas, of course, if you're Russia, then there are people who are Russian or identify as Russian who are living in, I don't know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. So... You know, they're going to pick the phone up um, and you'll find that the UK televotes sometimes, you know, Greece will do really well and Poland and Lithuania because there are a lot of people from those countries living here. And That's they, right. uh, they kind of mobilize themselves and they're kind of almost I think there's an email that goes around saying, oh, you know, listen to our song <laughs> and vote for it if you feel like it. Doug has a look on his face here like he just doesn't understand any of this. <laughs> well, I, I get it. Um, it's it's the sort of thing that in the United States we don't have anymore. 
Musical variety shows were a big part of television history since the golden age of television. And in fact, right up into the 70s and 80s, we had musical comedy shows and musical variety shows. Where, where we would have singers and comedians and magicians and all that. Exactly. But with the exception of these reality show singing contests, American Idol, The Voice, America's Got Talent, we don't really have the musical variety show that we used to. And and here the Eurovision contest is uh, is keeping musical variety alive, at least in Europe. Um, the question I was going to ask is, it's a contest. What do you win? You just win it. And winning it is oh. not enough. <laughs> I thought there'd be a cash prize or something. You would hope that you would have a hit with it and it would start your career or continue. It doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, in most cases, most people afterwards, certainly in this country, the UK, you don't hear of those singers again. But, you know, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, ABBA, it was a way of them kind of launching themselves. It took them a little while. They tried to represent um, Sweden the year before in 1973. Um, and, you know, it's all very well for me to say, oh, you know, Finland won in, I don't know, 2006 and no one's ever heard of them since. But they may well have established themselves in other countries around Europe. So it's not all about being big in the UK and, and places like that. But it is, you know, but I think some people just like doing it. You know, it's a it's a thrill. It's an exciting thing to be part of. Um, and, yeah, it is weird. There is no prize. Well, there's a there's a statue. There's a little trophy. And your country gets the opportunity to host the contest the year after. And you've always got that. I mean, some people think, I mean, Sandy Shaw won it in 1967 for the UK. And for a long time thought it was a curse because she'd been pigeonholed in a certain way. You know, a Eurovision winner, people think the songs are a bit tacky and a bit naff. I, I would disagree with that to some extent. Um, so it can be a bit of a problem for some people, but not so much now, I don't think, because the variety of music, because it used to be an orchestra. You had to have an orchestra until 1998. Of course, that meant that certain songs just would not work because they had they need a backing track. So now it's just backing tracks. And, you know, that means that a wider variety of music can be heard, which makes it more contemporary. You mentioned on Twitter this morning that it's the 30th anniversary of Céline Dion winning for Switzerland. Yeah. So there are a couple of big careers that were launched. And you also mentioned later by email that Riverdance was first presented during the interval yeah. um, between the singing and the voting. And that's become quite a phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Celine Dion represented Switzerland of all places in 1988, one by one point. Well, she's Swiss, isn't she? She's a Swiss. Well, no, she's Swiss Canadian. She's uh, well, French Canadian, I guess. Um, so yeah, um, but um, yeah, and, and, and Riverdance was the interval act. Each country has to kind of find. Whilst people are voting, there has to be something happening. A couple of years ago, Justin Timberlake was the interval act, which was great, actually. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that made perfect sense because, actually, there's millions and millions of people across Europe watching this. Why would you not want to be the interval act and think, oh, well, they might go out and buy my record? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but a lot of the time, that interval act used to be a way of presenting something about your country. And, of course, Riverdance was very, very obviously Irish and became a phenomenon. Um, so... It does have these, I mean, it's almost by accident sometimes that people, I mean, I think talent will always win out. I mean, ABBA were always, you know, in retrospect, you can tell they were amazingly talented singers and songwriters. And Celine, similarly, I would say, her, you know, vocally, she's, you know, she's very, very amazing. She's amazing, really, and, and, and appeals to a uh, kind of, you know, quite, quite a very wide audience. Um, so, yes, the, the, the people do come along every now and then uh, and make fantastic careers. But 
generally speaking, that isn't the case. But as a fan, you don't really care about that. I mean, yes, I do follow some of the singers that have won and who've taken part, but it's all about the excitement of the competition, really, and the music. So who were your top three picks? Oh, my goodness. You've listened to all the songs? <laughs> you said you liked the French song. I love the French song, and it's actually something like second in the betting. Um, I would like it to win. It's a great song by a, a, a male-female duo. They're called Madame Monsieur. They're married, and the song is called Mercy. And it's actually about um, a child that was born at sea as part of the kind of refugee crisis. So there's a kind of social conscience to it. Um, it's sung in French. So whether people will actually understand that, I'm not sure. But the melody is very hypnotic. Um, so I really like that. Uh, the Israeli entry is the favourite at the moment. Um, it's a song called Toy. And it's sung by a female singer called Netta. And it's a kind of song of female emp empowerment. The lyrics go something like, I'm not your toy, you stupid boy. Um, <laughs> so that's a, it's a good, it's not my favourite, but it, it, it is the favourite to win. And then interestingly, the Czech Republic, whose best position so far was second last uh, a couple of years ago, I think, or last year, I can't remember, a couple of years ago. Uh, they've got a great song called Lie to Me, which is actually quite Justin Timberlake-y. Although having said that, unfortunately, yeah, the, during the first rehearsal, the guy that's singing it kind of hurt his back because he was going to do some sort of like, um, kind of like flip jump kind of thing. Um, so hopefully he'll be all right to perform. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there, I could go on and on and on. I like about 20 of the songs a lot. But, uh, well, but it's not a question of what you like. It's a question of what has the potential to win, right? Well, any of those three have the potential to win. But it's all about the rehearsals because... Until the rehearsals, you've only heard the song, you've seen them on their national finals or whatever, or a video, um, or you've heard the record, you know. But when you get to the Eurovision, the staging is really important, the way it's presented. In the end, it's three things. You need a great song, a great singer, and the way it's presented is also very important. That doesn't mean bells and whistles. It can mean just standing there. But some great songs have been killed by bad staging. And similarly, some kind of quite average songs have been lifted by great performers and great presentation. The UK song last year, believe me, was not a great song. But the singer, Lucy Jones, was a brilliant singer. And the way it was presented on television was fantastic. And it really lifted it. Um, so, you know, it's those three magic ingredients are so important. Okay. Dean, we're going to let you go. You've got to pack your bags and get off to Portugal. Thanks very much for taking this time with us. And I hope listeners will see if they have this channel to watch this in the States. If you've never seen this, it really is quite an interesting cultural event. Thanks, Dean. No worries. We have reached the portion of the program where we tell you about our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to. Kirk, what do you got? My next track this week has nothing to do with the Eurovision Festival, but it's European there's a band I discovered around 1982, and I think what attracted me to them was their name. This is one of the coolest band names I've ever heard, Crispy Ambulance. They're a Manchester band. They were on Factory Records. They were, you know, like Joy Division and Derudy Column. They were uh, of this group of bands that I was listening to because they were on Factory Records. And so they recorded an album called The Plateau Phase in 1982, and I think this was the first one. I ever had. I only had a couple of their albums. And, you know, some of that Manchester 1980s stuff is punkish, like 
Joy Division or then New Order gets a little bit more dancey. And there's something here that's more drone-like, a lot of the songs. And of course, Crispy Ambulance never had a hit single or was very popular. I think the the track I like the most is called The Presence, which is a 13-minute track. And I think it's just a single chord. There's no chord changes. So it's really sort of dance drone with, you know, a heavy drum beat going on behind it and a wailing vocal. And this kind of crossed my mind today because I haven't listened to this in a long time. But this is a, a record that got a lot of play. You know, Doug, last week you mentioned this album, Polyrock. This is from about the same period. It's the kind of music that there was this sort of quirky new wave that was never going to make it onto the charts, but really had something to say. So the re-release of Plateau Phase includes Live on a Hot August Night, which is a few live tracks, and Sexist, I think, which is just a single. There's 13 tracks on us. It's 72 minutes. Check it out. It's it's a, a, a strange record. And, you know, it's probably a band that could have gone a lot further. I'm looking on Apple Music, and they did release a number of records, and they released something even in the, in the 2000s. So they didn't disappear, but it's just a band that never had a great popularity. So it's Crispy Ambulance, The Plateau Phase. Doug, what's your pick this week? I haven't been listening to a lot of music recently. So like you, I quickly looked for something I haven't listened to in a while. And Pete Townsend's Empty Glass caught my eye. This is the album with Let My Love Open the Door on it. I remember liking this album a lot when it came out. It's very radio-friendly. A lot of my friends had it. It was produced by Chris Thomas, who worked on Dark Side of the Moon, had just done The Pretender's first album. He'd worked with Roxy Music, Wings, Badfinger. So this album has a really polished sound, probably because Pete Townsend recorded these songs over a period of two years and had a chance to make them sound the way he really wanted. It was a refreshing album at the time because I was listening to a lot of new stuff, a lot of first albums. And so when Pete Townsend released this album, it was great to hear a well-done rock album. I'm a fan of Pete Townsend, but not all of his solo stuff is as consistent as this album. Plus, he tends to get a little convoluted. Even on this album, he dedicates the opening song, Rough Boys, to his kids and to the Sex Pistols. Gives you something to think about. But... This album, you can listen to it all the way through and I, I think really enjoy it. A lot of people, critics, and even Roger Daltrey complained that this album should have been a Who album, particularly when the Fair to Middling Face Dances came out in 1981. So I mentioned Rough Boys. It also has A Little Is Enough, Gonna Get You, Jules and Jim. I like all these songs. I'm going to listen to it again. Pete Townsend, Empty Glass, is my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.